Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, we'll take up where we left off last time in verse 13, <clears throat> reading to the first verse of chapter 7. Those of you newer or visiting with us, uh, we are studying through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and, and uh, Moses has finally been uh, led by the Lord into Egypt to do what the Lord had been wrestling with him to do, and that was to go into Pharaoh's court and declare that his people were leaving and to demand that Pharaoh let them go. And Pharaoh responded by making their work even harder, uh, demanding the same quota of bricks but not supplying the straw, a very essential element. And uh, it was so oppressive, it was so discouraging. Uh, things got worse, not better, as a result of Moses coming. At least that was the perspective of the Israelites. And, and so not only does Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and do the Egyptians turn on, on Moses, but now the people of Israel turn on Moses. And uh, they, they say that, uh, that they were doing better. They were, they were not happy where they were. They did cry out for God to bring them deliverance. But now that Moses has come, things have gotten much worse and they wish he would leave. And then Moses turns on God and says, you have done evil to us. You have done evil. And God responds in chapter 6 verse 1 and says very graciously, he doesn't respond to Moses' disrespect the way we might be tempted to. He just tells him to do the same thing again and reminds him of the covenant of grace and assures him of all the things he will do and all the things that Moses will do as a result of his empowering grace. And now we come to another protest from Moses. And uh, to understand this, you, you, the significance of this, you have to understand something about Hebrew narrative or Hebrew poetry. It's more common in Hebrew poetry, this stylistic device called inclusio. It's a, it's a book-ending device. It, it, it tells you the main point of the story by, or the main point of the poem by, by wrapping a, a similar phrase around it. So you see it in the Psalms a lot, praise the Lord, verse 1, and then the end of the psalm is praise the Lord. And you get the strong impression that the whole psalm is about praising the Lord. And the same thing happens in, in narrative occasionally. There's a, there's a statement made at the beginning and then a statement made at the end. And those, those book-ending statements tell you what the whole story is about. In verses 12 and 30, we have one of those inclusio statements. It is this, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips. In verse 30, Moses answers the same way, even after God tells him how he's going to be empowered to do what he's called to do. And Moses protests again, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me, a man of uncircumcised lips? What in the world is the message? Well, let's read and ask the Holy Spirit to teach it to us. Beginning in verse 10, chapter 6. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of 
uncircumcised lips. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the house of the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to the generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Sons of Izhar, Korah, Nephag, and Zikri, these the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things of the gospel from this Old Testament text, even from this genealogy, all of these interesting names. Would you show us that every word of Scripture is given to us to point us to the wonderful name and person of Jesus? Lift up the heads of those who are discouraged, those who feel they may even be disqualified. Get a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. It's called the world's friendliest restaurant or Tim's place started by this young man a few years after he was graduated from college. 
His parents loved him well and supported him through his high school endeavors. And then the day came, he said he wanted to go to college. He, he went to East New Mexico University. He says about that experience that he was really homesick the first few months he was there. He said, my pillow was wet with tears every night because I cried myself to sleep with my face in that pillow. But then I said, that's enough of that. And I got up and he said, I went out of my room and I started making friends. And eventually he became very popular on his campus, graduated and returned home. His parents helped him pursue his lifelong dream of starting a restaurant and that he appropriately named Tim's Place. And it's called the world's most famous restaurant. He started another one since then. It's called the world's, most, the world's friendliest restaurant, and it's measured objectively by a hug meter that's on the wall. And, and when I read the story a couple of years ago, the hug meter had registered 33,000 hugs. I know it's well surpassed that by now because the hug meter registers every time Tim hugs someone who comes into the restaurant, which is everybody who comes into the restaurant. The world's friendliest restaurant, Tim's Place. What was it about that story that captured the nation's attention through the NPR StoryCorps radio program? It's impressive enough that a young man like that would, would uh, strike out and start a restaurant, a risky business, as a, right out of college. What makes the story especially amazing is that Tim has Down syndrome. It makes it amazing to think that Tim's parents loved him and supported him all the way through high school to the point that he had the confidence to go to college and then that they were confident enough to let their son go to college and live in a dorm and fight through homesickness and finish college and then come back home and help him set up a restaurant and get an apartment near the restaurant so that he could walk to work and have the dignity of opening his own restaurant and hugging every person that comes into it. It's an amazing, heartwarming story, isn't it? As these kinds of stories are. And we do, we are amazed by Tim, aren't we? We are amazed by his perseverance. But the secret behind the whole story is something else. It was his parents. It was the community that surrounded him with love and provided the support necessary to supply what may have been lacking according to his disability. It is, it is this overcoming, self-sacrificial, untiring, persevering, gracious love of others that makes a disability story so heartwarming. This passage of scripture, it seems to me, is a disability story. Now, a disability story is a technical name for a subcategory of literature, one that's only in the last uh, decade or so been studied as a subset of literary, of, liter of various literary genre, and especially in ancient Near Eastern texts. Disability stories, making certain points by means of 
a focusing lens of a physical disability. And it seems to me that that God is bringing to the surface not merely Moses' professed physical disability, but as we've learned from other ancient Near Eastern texts, the, the, the physical dis- disability is really a mask for a more profound sense of unworthiness, that it's somehow more acceptable to claim this physical disability as that which hinders you from doing what you uh, are expected to do, and, and, and it masks the rejection one feels for his person at a deeper level. Some of you may be able to identify, even if you don't have a, an obvious physical disability, you may be able to identify with Moses who feels that he is disqualified because, it seems to me, he feels like he's disqualified because he is despised and because he's foolish and because he is weak. And those are the words that come when Paul is talking about the power of the cross, when Paul talks about it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 27 and following, he said, he took the despised things, the things that are not, he, he, he took those, he took those kinds of people, people despised by the world, and he chose them intentionally in order to nullify those things that everybody else says are acceptable. And he took the weak things that he might shame the strong. And he, and he chose those who are called foolish by the world in order that he might shame their wisdom. If this morning, in this sanctuary or in some other way, you are connected to this service. If this morning you feel you are despised, you are foolish, you are weak, and therefore disqualified for service in the kingdom of God, I have news for you. I have good news for you. Those are resume enhancers in the kingdom of God. The more despised, the more foolish, the more weak you are, the more opportunity God has to manifest His power, the power of His grace that is made strong and powerful and obvious through weakness. Now, let me show you how I get it from this text. Beginning in verse 12 and verses 28 and 30, this is where I think we understand that Moses views himself as being despised. He views himself as being despised. Now, ostensibly, he's claiming that he can't do what God has called him to do because he has uncircumcised lips. Now, earlier in chapter 4, verse 10, he says he has a heavy mouth. Well, these are euphemisms for a speech impediment. We know from Akkadian texts that archaeologists have discovered, we know from Akkadian texts, the Akkadian medical texts, that there was a condition called heavy mouth, and there were prescribed treatments for it. And the ESV translates literally what the Hebrew reads, uncircumcised lips. But it's a euphemism for describing a mouth that just doesn't work the way it's supposed to, one that is rejected perhaps by the society because it doesn't speak properly, it doesn't work properly. So he says, I have lips, I have a mouth, I have a tongue that doesn't work correctly. 
I'm a man of faltering lips. I have a speech impediment. Now, it's strange for us to read that he says he has a speech impediment, given that we have in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, uh, the Holy Spirit's commentary through Stephen on Moses' ministry, and they said he is a man who was mighty in word. We also know the rest of the story, some of us know the rest of the story in Exodus, and, and uh, you know, God gives Aaron to Moses as a mouthpiece, but you know, you, Aaron doesn't talk a lot. He doesn't get many opportunities to talk because Moses is doing all the talking. So somehow this man with a speech impediment found it possible to speak. Why was it that, that he claimed he had a speech impediment? Now, some people say it's something else in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, uh, interpreters began to say, no, it wasn't a, a physical handicap. It was, it, was, it was just that he was inarticulate. There's no evidence for that. In fact, all of the circumstantial evidence is to the contrary. In chapter 4, for instance, when he says, I have a heavy mouth. Lord, don't send me. I have a heavy mouth. Verse, chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, he, he, that was preceded by God having him put his hand in his cloak and he came out leprous and then he healed it. And then as soon as God says, uh, as soon as Moses says, I have a heavy mouth, don't, don't send me, I can't, I can't do this. God says, well, who made the tongue in the first place? Who makes someone deaf or mute or, or blind or seeing? I am the one. He describes physical uh, capabilities or physical disabilities. So there seems to be every evidence that Moses is claiming to have a physical handicap, a disability. But that physical disability we've if we may use this, this newer insight into the literature of the time, seems to be pointing to a deeper problem that Moses has. And it's easier for him to admit that he has a physical impediment, a physical impairment, than it is to admit what is really going on, and that is that he's battling shame. Uh, you think about it for a moment. This is why I think he's, he's battling shame, and that is the that is the, 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 almost the uniform story in, in disability text, that the person who claims, or even if he has a physical handicap, uh, makes it prominent in order to cover something that is more deeply shameful. What would Moses be ashamed of? Moses is shame, experiencing shame in his rejection because he's been, he's been rejected by both cultural groups with whom he identified. He is literally a man without a people. He identified himself as Jewish. You know, when, when, when the Egyptian was beating the, his, his, his Jewish uh, 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 neighbor in, in Egypt, he, he rose up to his defense and killed the Egyptian. And later he says that that he is, after one of his children is born, he says, I am an, an alien living in an alien land. I'm a sojourner in this land. He's saying, I am a Jewish person in a Gentile land. So he, he was grateful for, he acknowledged his Jewish ancestry. But he was also one who identified as an Egyptian. He'd been adopted into an Egyptian, into Egyptian royalty and 
He must have continued to like wearing Egyptian clothes because when he met the shepherdesses at the well, they said he's obviously an Egyptian. They recognized him by his clothes. And when God called him to go and speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go, then Moses said to God, you want me to say the God of your fathers has sent me to you? Moses at that point was identifying more as an Egyptian than he was as an Israelite. And then he married a Gentile. He married a Midianite wife. Here is a man who is fully Egyptian and fully Jewish, and both groups have rejected him. Pharaoh and, and the royal court, in whose, in whose place he was and where he, where he had a place of influence, they rejected him. And now the Jewish people he came and risked his life to lead out, they are rejecting him too. And in so doing, Moses must feel that his person is rejected. Something that strikes at his very dignity. And he feels great shame. Now maybe you know this, maybe you know this phenomenon. Maybe some of you know this as children or some of you can remember it as children. You're on the playground and you know that they're dividing up teams and they're picking people for their teams and you know that you're not going to be picked because you don't have the ability for the particular sporting contest that is going to be played. And, and so what do you do? You grab your ankle. Oh, I think I sprained my ankle. I'm going to sit this one out anyway. And you limp over to the side and you sit down because somehow that preserves your dignity. It's better to have a sprained ankle. It's better to be on the DL than it is to be passed over and not chosen and shamed because you are not worthy to be on this playing field because you don't have the proper ability. Then there are other cases too. You're passed over for, you're passed over for a, a promotion and you say, well, you know, uh, I, have, uh, I have sleep apnea anyway and I, and I wasn't able to perform up to the task and it's a good thing they passed over me because... I couldn't, I couldn't do, I'm handicapped. Any number of reasons you may claim that you are being rejected that may save face. And sometimes the, the reason you're being shamed or the reason you feel shame is because of something you've done to yourself. Just like uh, Adam and Eve when, when God went after them and they sinned against him, they wickedly rebelled against him and God came after them. And he said, where are you? And he, they said, we're hiding. And why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Now, I think God knew that. God made the very bodies that they were in. And uh, if he had answered, he could have answered this way. He could have said, you know, nudity is the least of your problems. I happen to know your body inch by inch because I put it together. Your real problem is shame. You have rejected me and now you feel rejected. Maybe that's yours too. Shame is something we all battle for one way or another. We've either done it to ourselves or we are allowing other people to impose it on us. Regardless of, what, how, of the shame that you're experiencing, the solution is the same. It is to go to Moses' God who is Jesus. 
is to go to Christ. Because through this very in, uh, insufficient guide, Moses, we are led to the one who is all-sufficient, even Christ, a one who would take on a human body and one who would live in our place. And every place that we've made choices where we've made the wrong choices, he would make the right choices. And, and then he would take that righteous record that he earned in our place and give it to us. And, in that, and, and, and then he would fulfill the curse that was promised to Adam and Eve that in the day they ate of it, they would, they would die. They didn't die immediately, but Jesus did die as soon as he became sin for us. Jesus lived and died in our place in order to say this through the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Who condemns you? Who tells you you should be shamed? Is it someone else because of your looks, because of what you can't accomplish, because of what you do, what you can't do? Is it you because of some insufficiency you see in yourself or, or something in your past? Who tells you to be ashamed? Ashamed of your person, to feel shame in your very being. Well, there is no one in the cosmos who is worthy of telling you to feel shame than the one who is the creator of image. And that one says to you in Jesus Christ, if he is your Savior, he says to you, who tells you you're condemned? I'm the one who died. I'm the one who was raised for your justification. God alone justifies. God alone condemns. And if I have said you're not condemned, if I have said you're accepted in the beloved, if I have said that you're raised to new life, you're righteous, you're beautiful in my sight. It does not matter what anyone else says about you. It doesn't even matter what you say about you. God says, you are His and as beautiful as Jesus. Well, the other two points I'll cover really quickly. Moses also would have felt foolish and weak. Foolish, using that terminology of Paul, because he was, because he was a Gentile. I read the whole uh, genealogy because I wanted you to hear what Moses said about himself. He said he was the son, ultimately, of a Canaanite woman. And in verse 26... These, these are Aaron and Moses. Aaron and Moses are the ones who, who descended from these people. And Aaron and, and Moses says to the world, I am a descendant of a Canaanite. I wasn't just adopted into a, into a, a Gentile family. I have Gentile blood in me. Now you say, that's really strange that you had this genealogy drop down in the middle of this very exciting story. Some people criticize the text here and say it's obviously corrupted because you, you don't have, it just doesn't make sense to drop a genealogy down here. It's something like watching a, a superhero movie, you know, and the superhero is holding the damsel in distress and he has her just by the fingertips and, and if he just moves a little bit, he's going to drop her. And just at the peak of the most stressful moment, someone breaks in and says, do you have acid reflux? <laughs> have you tried Nexium? There's an advertisement in the middle, it doesn't fit. And so here's, here's this story about Moses arguing with God. And then let me tell you about my 
genealogy. It's very important because by this genealogy, Moses is saying to us, to about himself and to everybody else, if you think that you are ethnically or familially or culturally defective, then you're wrong. The God who makes families and the God who crafts ethnicity and the, the God who shapes culture is the one who has crafted you with your heritage. And he's done it in such a way that he might bring glory to himself. Moses said, I had a Canaanite in my family land, family line. And, and the Jews would call me foolish because they called the Gentiles foolish because they didn't have revelation. But not only that, he, he says uh, he has Jewish heritage too. In fact, he's related to priests and he's related to Jacob, the namesake of Israel, and and. He's related to people like Korah who led a rebellion against him uh, ultimately. He's related to someone like Reuben. You know, it's interesting to trace Reuben through Genesis because Reuben is nothing impressive. Reuben slept with his father's wife and after that he was scorned by his brothers and, and by biblical writers for the rest of the text. He, he's the one who had the bright idea instead of killing Joseph to put him in a cistern. And then he said he had developed a, a, thought, a, a plan in his mind. He would go back later and retrieve him. But uh, his brothers didn't even tell him about their plan. They sold him uh, into slavery. And when Reuben went back to find Joseph, he, he couldn't find him. And then in chapter 42, when, when Joseph reveals his identity and, 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 uh, um, and uh, Reuben's running for cover, he says, you know, he tells his brother, I told you this would happen. I told you this would happen. You should have listened to me. And then when it was before, it was, it was before Joseph revealed his identity, and, and before he revealed his identity, he said, I want you to bring back, my, uh, bring back that, that man's youngest son. And they said, no, he, he will not let go of his youngest son. And, and Reuben said, well, I'll tell you what, i tell you what, if we don't return, if we don't return the youngest son to our father, then I'll just kill both of my sons. In other words, Reuben was just dumb. He was, he was evil morally. He was dumb. He was, he was a coward. The Korahites were rebels. The Gentiles would look down on this whole line as, as being unbecoming and politically weak, politically defective. Morally and politically defective. And Moses says, yes, these are my family members. This same Aaron and Moses descended from these people. This is the one God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What disqualifies you? Who has told you to be ashamed of what you've done? of what you are? Who has told you that you're defective because of your ethnicity or because of your socioeconomic background? Who has told you you are defective because of your family, because of your ancestors, 
because you don't have a place of influence in this culture or in your place of business or in your classroom. Who has told you that? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yea, who was glorified and raised from the dead and says, you're beautiful in my sight, in my righteousness. Moses had no social standing, neither did Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Moses was rejected by his own, so was Jesus. He was one from whom men hid their faces. Moses had no physical ability, had a physical inability. Jesus was captured and imprisoned. Moses was shamed, and Jesus was put on a cross. But he was raised to life and given victory over the curse and given victory in grace that he might apply it to you and me. In this interview I talked about earlier, Tim, at Tim's place, he asked his dad at the end of the program, Dad, how does it feel having a son with a disability? His dad replied, you know, Tim, when you were born, I was filled with a lot of doubts about whether I could be good enough to be your dad. Many years later now, I'm so happy to have you in my life. I'm very, very proud of you and what you've done. Dad, Tim says, you're the most loving dad ever. You guys are my superheroes. And having you in my life, that's what makes me special. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who makes us special by His grace made manifest and glorious in our childlike weakness. Let's pray together. Our Lord King Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen to build an army for your kingdom out of misfits and disqualified, despised, foolish, weak, ignoble people. We pray that you would continue to enable us to see ourselves not as we want to be seen, but to see ourselves as you, in fact, have declared us to be. And may we minister in that weakness in such a way that the power of the grace of your gospel is made clear and contagious. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.